We continue this sermon series on the beginning of beginnings, the first part of the first book of the Bible. And the beginning starts gloriously, creatively, wondrously, but the beginning turns ugly pretty quickly, which leads to an ending, as we'll see in today's passage. It's the account of Noah and the flood. There are all kinds of details that we may never fully understand, questions that may never be answered to our satisfaction, but what we will see very clearly yet again is the merciful and compassionate heart of God towards sinners like us. Um, If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? I'm going to Read two sections with a break in between. I'll I'll tell you where I'm jumping. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Genesis 7, starting in verse 13. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, They lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Jumping down to verse 15. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land, came out of the ark, one kind, after another, then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, "Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done." As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we marvel at your power, at your creative work in crafting all things, including man and woman in your image. We tremble in awe at your righteousness that you never fail to act according to your perfect character, 
your holiness, your righteousness. And so, Lord, bring us humility as we wonder at things that some of which are beyond our understanding. Show us what we need to hear, see about you. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. I have four headings this morning, um, and it's, I want to say to you, it's going to be okay. <laughs> we will get through this together. Um, there's so much going on here that we're not going to dive deep into every little detail. We're going to do a flyby and drop down here and there to see a few things that are um, um, really important and significant to, to uh, point out, um, but um, we can't answer every question. If you have some big questions about Genesis, some of, of, of these themes we've addressed in prior messages, and so uh, you can always go to graceforgenomer.com or pull up the GRC app and uh, sample some of the messages that have come before. This is really building on um, the last couple of messages that are now three and four weeks old because of our missions week with two Sundays off. So, I'll jump in first with a fact or fable. Fact or fable. It is not uncommon to hear from a Bible skeptic, yeah, but what about Noah and the flood? Surely you don't think that that actually happened, do you? And that the earth was repopulated through one man and his family. For the record, I absolutely do believe that that actually happened. But first, it's helpful to clarify something. When you come across phrases like, all the mountains under the entire heavens were covered, the absolute language seems to clearly point to worldwide, utter, complete devastation. But if you read Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, which uses some of the same phrasing written by the Apostle Paul, we, we find this. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. If you were consistent, you'd have to believe that in the Apostle Paul's lifetime, every human being on the face of the earth had heard the gospel, and we know that that's not possible. And so what was the Apostle Paul saying? We're not playing, uh, we're not playing loose and fancy with words here. He was emphasizing with the words available to him in, uh, that the gospel had traveled throughout the known Mediterranean and Middle Eastern world to such an extent that all of these people groups had been exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ in only a few decades. A dead Jewish carpenter and the message of his sacrifice on the cross and rising from the tomb had impacted every known culture at the time under heaven. Astounding. That's Paul's point. Um, just like when Luke, who wrote the gospel and the book of Acts, wrote in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, at Pentecost, now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. There's that every word and under heaven, um, complete, wide scope. Paul, or Luke rather, did not mean that every single people group, ethnos, we heard that last Sunday from our missions speaker, he didn't mean that every single people group had at least one representative of a God-fearing Jew show up physically in Jerusalem for this feast. He is emphasizing that people came from all over the place. And so, it's quite possible, maybe even likely, 
that when Genesis 7 describes the flood's complete destruction at a time in history when people lived and died in a limited area, not having the ability to safely survive long distances of travel because there were no rest areas, there were no hotels, there were no sources of food. It's quite possible, maybe likely, that the extent of the known world was, to the writer of Genesis, the whole world under the heavens. Listen to chapter 7, verse 23. The absolute language. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Doesn't sound like anybody was left except Moses and his family and these animals on the ark. But the first word translated earth here is Adama, from which we get Adam's name. He came out of the ground, the dust of the earth, right? Um, And it can be translated, that word, ground or land. Um, Same with the second word that our English translates the earth, the last word in this verse. It's the Hebrew word eretz. There's also this acceptable, normal range of meaning, ground, land, earth, being faithful to what the Bible says here does not require that we understand the flood to have devastated every single human being on the planet earth at the time. What's the point here? God's judgment was severe because every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time, Genesis chapter 6. And his response was just and right and was beyond the ability of any human being to comprehend. It was awesome and fearful and right, not limited. So is it really feasible that a man-made boat with all these animals stuck inside for about a year in the worst flooding disaster in all of history, is it really feasible that that actually happened? The most effective answer I can offer, I'm not qualified to delve into archaeology and scientific inquiry, the most effective answer that I can offer, more effective than that stuff I would contend, is the New Testament's absolutely clear assumption that Noah, his family, a big boat, and the flood are all historical realities that have present-day implications for our lives today as followers of the King. That's what the New Testament assumes. And so Jesus, in Luke chapter 17, verse 26, says this, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. There's a comparison. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. I'm sorry, Um, people were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. Jesus is referring back to something that happened and pointing out the present-day implications. If Jesus was fooled by fable, then a lot more than an ark and a flood and some animals have to be questioned. The Apostle Peter, in his two letters, also refers to Noah, the building of the ark, and eight people saved through water. Two references there. Hebrews chapter 11 points back to the heroes of old, the people of the Old Testament, 
characterized by their faith in God. And Hebrews 11 has this to say about Noah. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. Noah and the ark and the flood are either very real because they actually happened, or the entirety of the New Testament is a sham along with the worldwide movement of Christianity that has shaped so much of modern civilization. The New Testament absolutely assumes that this had actually happened, and it still has implications for our lives today. Oh, and one last thing. Let me solve one mystery for you when you ask this question. What happened to the unicorns? Well, um, from now on, all carnivores will be confined to sea deck. It's hard to keep the hungry lions from uh, certain animals uh, for so very long. So um, apparently God created the unicorns according to Farside, and uh, they didn't make it off the boat. So there you go. One question answered. Uh, we move to grace before godliness, secondly. Grace before godliness. Uh, I didn't read this, this time at least. We read it last time. But chapter 6, verse 9 tells us this first thing we find out about Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. He spent years building a ridiculously big boat. John, that must have been incredible craftsmanship back in the day, right, with no power tools. Um, He trusted God's word the entire time, all while his neighbors mercilessly mocked him. That's not in the Bible text, but we know that happened because you all saw Evan Almighty, right? Um, there, was, uh, there was a lot of mockery there. Noah's character is commended, but here's the thing. Chapter 6, verse 8 comes before chapter 6, verse 9. Sounds silly to point that out, but it's significant that the statement, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord comes before Noah was a righteous man. Grace comes before godliness. You say, well, that just happened to be the way the the writer of Genesis, Moses, put things. And it may be the case, but the reason I'm pointing this out is because that is always the pattern of biblical truth. That is at the root of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only path of salvation. Grace comes before godliness. This fits the rest of the Bible. It isn't just a a happenstance. Grace comes before godliness. God's promise is always given before God expects any loving return of obedience to him. That's always the biblical pattern. God says, I simply love you because before he begins to give his people details about how to love him back. And um, in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, this unpacking of the heart of salvation, he's talking about salvation by faith in Romans chapter 4, and the example he uses is Abraham, who will show up later in Genesis, starting in verse 12. Paul points out that Moses received God's promise, chapter 12 of Genesis, long before God's law was revealed through Moses, hundreds and hundreds of years later. Promise comes before law. Grace comes before godliness. 
And Paul points this out, quoting Genesis 15. Abraham believed God at his promises, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The Bible does not say that Abraham was wonderfully obedient and morally righteous, and that's why God blessed him. In fact, the opposite is the case. The Bible goes almost out of its way to point out the flaws of this man, Abraham. Woo. Um, we get these uh, pictures of Abraham's fearful, deceptive, sinful unbelief two different times in the book of Genesis. He is not a hero without flaws to be emulated. That's not the point of Abraham's life. And yet, God kept his promises to this man. It is so instinctive, even for people inside the church, it is so instinctive to believe that God blesses the obedient, the morally clean. That it's so instinctive to think that eternal life, we might put it, that getting into heaven depends on how you've lived your life. We hear that over and over and over again, sometimes from people who have been in church for many, many, many years. That instinct of the flesh is absolutely and fatally wrong. It's got to be a primary strategy of the devil to put somebody in church and keep them thinking that their goodness is going to earn enough of God's favor to get them into heaven safely tucked away in a church seat or a pew. Fatally wrong thinking. It's common, even if you have Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 memorized, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not from works so that no one can boast. The, the last part of that verse helps us understand why this wrong instinct is so common. Because going back all the way to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve in the garden, we want to rule our own lives. We want credit for success. We want to justify ourselves as right when instead, in contrast, the truth is our sinful rebellion against the king of all kings and creator. That rebellion deserves death unless the king extends mercy in not treating us as our sins deserve. Grace means undeserved blessing. It is a gift. It's not earned. It's not merited. It's not a salary that you've worked hard and you get that return that is proper. God saves his people, Paul writes to Titus, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. That's salvation. That's the gospel. Promise before law, grace, undeserved blessing that motivates a response of obedience. That is the only order of things that faithfully represents the gospel of Jesus Christ. And anything else is fatally wrong. 
that instinct, it's so important for us to, to detect it and to, to rebuke it and to preach the faithful gospel to ourselves and to each other over and over and over. Not thinking, not to, to put aside that thinking that my goodness earns something from God. All our righteous acts are filthy rags. The only righteousness that is good enough is the perfect righteousness of Jesus who lived a, sinful, a sinless, perfectly obedient, righteous life in perfect relationship with God the Father. This is not just a piece of doctrine that the pastor is presenting to you in a Sunday sermon. This is incredibly freeing good news. It's, um, it's good news because to be freed from the crushing pressure and failure-fearing pattern that this area of the world is pretty much known for. The expectation that, the, the, the instinctive thinking that your performance, whether at work, whether in relationships, whether before God, th th to be freed from the thinking that, that your performance deserves what you will get in return. To be freed from that is incredibly good news. It's gospel. It's the difference between Always feeling like you have to prove yourself because no one will ever approve of you. No one will ever delight in you unless you are good enough, competent enough, beautiful enough, fast enough on the field, skilled enough, gifted enough. It's the difference between feeling like that performance treadmill will never slow down for you and simply knowing that you are loved, that you are delighted in by the one who created you to reflect his image. That's good news, isn't it? That's gospel. That's deliverance. To rest in those truths promised by God, not on condition that you're good enough, but because God offers this as creator and king. He offers you freedom and flourishing. The question is, simply, will you receive that gift by faith and rest in God's heart of mercy and compassion for you in Christ? Or will you insist on going your own way and reject God and the gifts that God offers, which is the path of sin? Thirdly, and real briefly, something I just want to point out, two brief snapshots under tender love. Two brief snapshots. After the ark's finally built, after all the animals are loaded up and everything's ready, just as God commanded Noah, just before the first drop of rain falls, this is what we read at the end of chapter 7, verse 16. Then the Lord shut him in. <laughs> that sounds cold. The Lord shut him in. But I want you to picture this. Grandma's come for a visit, and she's gone home. 88 years old, rickety everything, and you are holding on to her, maybe more accurately, she's holding on to you. You walk her slowly out to the car, and when you get there, this is the difficult part. You open the door for her, and uh, with knees that don't bend like they used to, and arthritic pain, she is really holding on to you, and you 
gently lower her into the car and she plops onto the seat because the muscles just can't stabilize her rickety body. And you painstakingly tuck in all four limbs to make sure that the door is going to close and you buckle her seatbelt and you kiss her goodbye and you gently shut the door. She's safe for her journey as the car heads off. Can you imagine the creator overseeing the details of this rescue? And only after everything is just right does he turn to the angels or however this happens and say, Noah and his family are safe. Let it begin. Tender love. The Lord shut him in. Now the heavens can unleash their deluge. There's a second snapshot. It comes at the end of 150 days of the land submerged in water. It took a lot longer for the, the waters to recede from the earth. Chapter 8, verse 1. After devastation, verse upon verse of ugliness, chapter 8 turns the page, but God. We say here at Grace Redeemer Church, those are gospel words. But God remembered Noah. It's not that he forgot. It's that he is even still intent on keeping his promises. Lastly, faith and judgment. Faith and judgment. Hebrews chapter 11 starts this way. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And then verse 7 is the example of Noah. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. That last phrase is what gets our attention. How did Noah's faith condemn the world? Sometimes you only notice something when you experience the opposite. So this is a common occurrence in our household. When we're in the kitchen cooking and the oven's on and the stove is roaring, and this is wintertime context we're coming right out of, right? And then we walk into the living room where we had been hanging out for uh, the hour before. Now it's freezing in there. <laughs> and it's, the room is still set to what the thermostat's set to, right? The heat is on. It's whatever number we had set it to. But the difference from the warm kitchen, you know what I'm getting at. You only notice that it's 67 degrees and a little chilly because you just came from the warm kitchen. Or maybe you come across a picture of yourself from last year's end of vacation a week down the shore, and on April 3rd, after a long, dark winter, you look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, dang, that pale face is either anemic or I need to get me some sun, right? The only reason you think that is because you just saw the contrast of the picture of you at your uh, tanned finest relative to your skin tone, whatever that may be, and you see the contrast coming out of a winter. Noah's radical obedience contrasted with the world's depravity 
confirms that God's judgment was just. Noah's faith condemned the world. In chapter 8, when the water level starts receding, there's hope after almost a year. And the second time Noah sends out the dove, it brings back an olive leaf. Um, it, supposedly, the, the phrase extending an olive branch comes from this Genesis 8 context. Extending an olive branch is a, is a gesture of peace. But I don't think this dove flying out and bringing back an olive leaf is supposed to symbolize peace, at least not primarily. The dove bringing back an olive leaf is a sign of the hope of new life. Everything got devastated. And now there's something green. There's something living. There's, there's restored hope in new creation. So fast forward to the New Testament. When Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, the Holy Spirit appears in the form of a dove. That wasn't a sign of peace, although peace is part of the reason Jesus has come, right? Peace is, is a part of good news, gospel, that we're no longer enemies of God. But the Holy Spirit appearing in the form of a dove was a sign of the hope of a new creation. Heaven and earth. Now it's possible that all things will be made new because Messiah has come. A little later in Genesis chapter 8, we do find a picture of peace. The first thing that Noah does when he gets off the boat is he builds an altar in order to perform sacrifice. And by the way, God had planned for this by instructing Noah to bring seven pairs of clean animals and clean birds, extra, because they would be needed for sacrifice. Why is that necessary? Because sin despite the devastation of the flood, has not been wiped away. It hasn't been fully dealt with. It's still at work. It's still corrupting and decaying. But sacrifice atones for sin. Atonement is this picture of covering over to protect from what? From God's justice, from his righteous judgment that he as a holy king properly pours out on sin. Sin has natural consequences. That's one of them. That's the, that's the heart of the consequence. And so sacrifice atones for sin. How? A substitute, the animal, pays the ultimate consequence of sin, which is death. That's the significance of blood, representing the ebbing away of life. And that protects the sinner from God's judgment. That brings peace, at least for the time being. Verse 21 describes God's response. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. And he responds in the next verses that end, uh, that close out chapter 8 with a promise of mercy. That his attitude towards sin will change from here on out. That he will not treat his people as our sins deserve. He will hold back his just response towards sin. Thousands of years later, the Apostle Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, 
a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The sin of mankind will return and will get ugly very quickly. But God's promise here is that he will hold off judgment for now until he provides his son as the perfect sacrifice, an unblemished lamb, the most fragrant offering, the most horrific death in all of history, not only from our standpoint, but from God the Father's standpoint. How how could that possibly be? But at the same time, these are the paradoxes of the gospel, the most fragrant offering Because this was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not a one-year-old without defect, actual animal, but uh, the God-man, the divine and human perfect Son of God whose sacrifice was the most fragrant offering. The cross was about the Father's judgment upon sin. Complete devastation, flooding the soul of Jesus for, the, uh, for, for what our sins deserve. But the cross is also, for us who believe, even more about the Father's mercy and compassion and tender love to offer the hope of new life from death. The same waters that lifted Noah up in the boat devastated all things in judgment. The same Father that offers life through death through faith in his son, made it possible by pouring out on Jesus everything that our sin deserves. Noah points us to Jesus. This is the gospel according to Genesis. Let's pray. Lord, we stand amazed in your presence at Jesus, the perfect sacrifice the one who deserved nothing of justice, but who received complete devastation, flooding his soul with your justice. Be pleased, O Lord, to draw us more and more deeply into that mystery at the heart of our faith, at the heart of the gospel, the best of news that we, especially as we celebrate this sacramental meal, that we might remember, enter again into the climactic moment of all of human history and freshly repent of our sin, freshly call it what it is, death, and quickly, not in despair, but in confident hope, turn to you, Lord, and worship you and receive your gifts with gratitude. We praise you because of Jesus in his name. Amen.